So I'm very excited for today's message that Jenny Hackman will be giving. She'll be preaching on the book of Ruth, which is an absolute remarkable piece of literature that can really be best understood as a complete book. And to begin the message today, which continues our true story series, we have a seven-minute video from, from the Bible Project. Enjoy. The book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, This family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. 
Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed. And that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story. And that's how little God is mentioned. Right? The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story. And that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life, but not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy, showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, These seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. See you next week. 
20 years ago, I had the opportunity to play the character of Ruth in a little uh, program at Elmbrook Church called Discovery Days when I was on staff there. Yes, I do have a little bit of acting and singing in my background, and so got snagged for that. And there's something very, very powerful about immersing yourself in the story uh, and in a character. And as I immersed myself these last uh, month or number of weeks preparing for this sermon, I was once again just reminded about how multidimensional this story is. Many stories in the scriptures are, but this one in particular And I felt led to take it just a little bit different direction this morning and taking a look at this story from the perspective of Naomi, when all is lost. Naomi is the female version of Job. She lost her husband. She lost her only two sons. She lost her property. She lost her wealth. And she was a female Things were pretty destitute for females under these circumstances. And there was a famine, and they were hungry, and they heard that God had been merciful to his people back in their homeland, and they decided to turn there. But all was lost for her. And I have no doubt, because we're human beings living in a world that is not as it ought to be, there are times, maybe even now, where to some degree or another, our experience is, it feels like all is lost. And this story has some tremendous nuggets of wisdom for us that are as true now as they were then, and that's what we're going to look at. When Naomi returns home, the first thing that she does with her people is she laments. She said to them, don't call me Naomi, lovely. Call me Mara, harsh. Because Shaddai has been very harsh to me. I was full when I went, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has afflicted me, and Shaddai has treated me badly? In this culture, there was a custom that we would do well to recover in our current culture. When there was pain and there was loss and there was confusion and there was disorientation, people did not pretend that things were just fine. They changed their name to match their circumstances. Naomi took it one step further and she transitioned the name that she typically called God, Yahweh, which was very personal, to Shaddai, which is a little bit more arm's length. You're my God, but you're not quite as trusted and personal as you were when things were full. We get very, very nervous about that as Christians in this culture. In fact, one thing that troubles me the most about this culture is that there's an alternative gospel that's no gospel at all that has woven its way into our Christianity called toxic positivity, forced gratefulness, manifesting the goodness of God so somehow God will return that goodness to us. It is not the gospel at all. And Naomi and Ruth knew that the practice, first practice we take up when we are lost and confused and there is no resolution in sight 
is we tell God our pain. Raw and unedited. This is not whining. This is not rehearsing negativity. It is not falling into a heap of self-pity. It is the ultimate act of trust and worship. And that's what they did. A theologian that has formed my life and my Christian formation more than any other is N.T. Wright. And this is what he has to say about lament. Using lament, the Abba prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 8, when we pray these prayers of lament, Abba, Father, I don't understand. Help me, where are you? Where are you? That is the time and the place that we come nearest and most intimately into the heart of God. And paradoxically, hope is born. When all is lost, we do not cope, and we do not heal, and it's very, very difficult to experience the presence of God and the hope of God if we do not courageously and worshipfully worshipfully lament our pain. Naomi and Ruth did something else, though, even as they were lamenting, and that is they did it in the context of community. They leaned on one another. This would just be a given in this culture. I think the artwork for this story that's out in the lobbies is just a beautiful. A picture is worth a thousand words. But in this culture, autonomy was really not much of a thought because people don't survive when you're autonomous. A number of times in the book of Ruth, we hear the phrase, go back to your people. They're there to provide for you and take care of you. Ruth says, your people will be my people. Naomi says, I need to go back to my people. And this people that they go back to in that culture have mechanisms set in place for people in their positions to make sure that the widows, the the poor, the marginalized are taken care of. It was built into the socioeconomic system. And so when they lamented and when they went back, they didn't go back pulling themselves up by their bootstraps with self-sufficiency. They went back knowing that one of the ways God would provide would be through their people. Some of you know that very part-time I practice as a licensed professional mental health counselor. One of the interests that I have is trauma resolution. This last winter when I was taking my continuing education credits on a course on trauma, there were two things that sobered me greatly, and it's changed the way that I've practiced and cared for people. One is this about what we know about what allows people to heal from trauma. The single most important thing that allows people to heal from trauma is having at least one person that can bear witness to the pain of their story. Just having somebody else hold that pain and hold that story and bear witness to it in and of itself appears to resolve to some degree or another trauma. There was something else that came out in this course that was even more sobering. And that is that many people, like the Naomi and Ruth, and by the way, this was a traumatic situation. It checks every single box. They just didn't have language for it. 
But in this situation, when they were traumatized by their losses, they leaned on other people. But what we know from people who have been through traumatic situations is that one of the most unhealthy survival skills people develop is something called hyper-independence. And they can't heal from trauma either because they cut themselves off from the provision that comes from one human being to another, walking and journeying with and providing an environment to hold our pain as we get that trauma resolved. Both of these practices, lament and leaning on one another, are so key to the way God has designed to take care of us when all is lost. And we would do well to recover our ancient roots of faith and begin practicing them in countercultural ways. Now, if we were looking at this through a modern-day lens, we might imagine that these two women, ah, they're finally home, it's the barley harvest, and maybe they can just camp out and watch some Netflix while their neighbors and community take care of them. But that is not what these women did. They exercised agency where they had it. Agency is not the same thing as control. It has nothing to do with manipulation. It has nothing to do with micromanaging a situation. We have no business trying to micromanage. It is actually using what is available to us, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And these women were savvy. They saw it, they knew it, and they utilized it, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, might I go to the fields and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I find favor? Naomi said to her, go my daughter. So she went. She came and gleaned in the fields behind the reapers and chance took her to the portion of fields belonging to Boaz, who was of Elimelech's kin group. So now, Naomi says, Boaz is indeed our close relative. You have been with his girls. So, he is winnowing barley on the threshing floor tonight. This is where it gets good. Have a bath, put on makeup, put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he lies down. Go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And Ruth said to her, all you say to me, I will do. These women lamented, and they leaned on community, but they did not collapse in self-pity. They did not collapse in helplessness. They did not berate their condition. They utilized the mechanisms that God had put in place. During the barley harvest, in this culture, the harvesters were required to leave a portion of their sheaves behind so widows and the poor could pick up after them. And then lo and behold, come to find out, this guy in whose field we are is our kinsman redeemer. Let's take action here because there's action to be taken. And quite frankly, Boaz did the same thing. 
Boaz was in a position of authority, and listen, his fields were not like other fields. This was not a safe place for women to be gathering sheaves behind the harvesters. I don't need to take it any further than that. This was not a safe situation. Boaz could have used his authority in a way to abuse and to take advantage. But he too exercised an agency as a follower of Yahweh to treat this woman with dignity and with respect. They exercised their agency. Little book I have on peace, I haven't taken out on a long time. Very tiny. It's a conglomeration of writings from Christian spiritual mentors and guides across the centuries. But I'll never forget one little reading that was on God's providence. And the author said this, God's providence also often works like a parachute. We have to jump and pull the ripcord and providence appears. These savvy women with no power in this situation appear to have gotten that. We might be without power, but somehow there is enough trust that there is providence, but we got to jump and pull the ripcord. And Boaz fell in line with that. So when all is lost or we're, we're really in the dark about things, lament and naming our pain, having a community of people around us, asking for wisdom about where to exercise agency in doing it are all really, really important. But the key part of this story that just blows me away time and time again, and I'll be honest with you, I cannot be reminded of this next part too often, that in all of this, whether we see it or not, we trust that God is working in the complexities of life in the mundane things, and in the profound things. Have any of you ever heard or used the term God incidences? Show of hands. Okay. I have a theory about why we use that, and that is because as Christians we are embarrassed by the word coincidences, that somehow we are dishonoring God. Scripture is not embarrassed by coincidences. There are so many times in this story and other stories, it just so happened by chance. It just so happened by chance. You'll see that again and again and again and again. Scripture is not shy about this because a coincidence are two incidences happening at the same time. This is how God works. Mundane life, the craziness of life, the unthinkable of life, and God weaving quietly and mysteriously but powerfully and surely in all of that. And chance took her to the portion of the fields belonging to Boaz, who is of Elimelech's kin group. And then Naomi coming around, may he be blessed by Yahweh who has not abandoned his commitment to the living and the dead. This man is a close relative of ours. He's our near kinsman. 
It just so happened that God was in the midst of all of this. My guess is that if you take a look back at your life, you will find just so happened circumstances. I'm going to share two of mine, a past one and a present one. When I was in sixth grade, because of a series of a number of things, my parents had to file for bankruptcy, and our house was foreclosed on, and we had to move. What I didn't know, by the way, I have his permission to tell you this story. My dad was contemplating suicide, and he went to talk to his accountant one last time to try to wrap things up, and it just so happened that his accountant was a follower of Jesus and invited my dad to a Bible study, it just so happened, at Elmbrook Church. And my dad came to faith. It just so happened two weeks after that, as my dad was coming awake to new life in Christ, that my twin sister, my younger sister, and my mom and I were all at home one evening, which didn't happen very much because of summer activities. And one by one by one, he shared the good news of Jesus with each of us. And on that same night, we all came to faith. And the next Sunday began worshiping together at Elmbrook Church. It just so happened that 18 months after our house was foreclosed on, and we moved into a small little house across town, the house that was foreclosed on was still for sale. It just so happened nobody was interested. It just so happened because it was a bank sale, the house was very inexpensive, and my parents bought it back. And that's where I spent the remainder of high school and college, and all four of my grandkids have fond memories of that house. I can count on three fingers the times I've seen my dad cry. But when he got on his knees when we moved back in that house, and thank God, that was one of them. It also just so happened that his best friend at Elmbrook Church was the pastor of pastoral care. And it just so happened that a handful of years later, this pastor called me at college and said, Jenny, would you be interested in an internship? We're looking for somebody like you. And I said, yes. It changed my career path, and here I am. All that just so happens. At the time, did I know that's what was going on? No. But God did. That's what he does. That's a neat and tidy one. Second one, not so neat and tidy. And also, I have permission to share this story with you as well. My husband and I have been best friends with a couple We knew at Elmbrook and in ministry, and they also happened to be neighbors of ours. Two years ago, the husband, Mike, was diagnosed with a very serious, advanced, lethal form of cancer, and it was not good. He went through treatment. The treatment allowed him to be able to see the birth of another grandchild, take a family vacation, wrap up all kinds of ministry to the poor and oppressed, that he had started and was involved in, but we knew that the end was near. 
there were a group of people that were convinced that if God was going to work, it would only be shown by a complete healing and restoration of, of his, his body. And that is not what happened. The majority of us knew that this illness would end in death. His wife, Elizabeth, is a person of faith unlike anyone I've ever met, who just exemplifies the things that I was talking about. It just so happened that three days before Mike passed away, I was going to go for a walk with Elizabeth, and it just so happened that she was late, coming back from her physical trainer. And Mike was sitting in the living room and let me in while we waited. And we had one of the funniest times of reminiscing for 15 minutes in his living room. And I hadn't talked to him that directly in months. Early the next morning, he was admitted to the hospital for an infection that they decided his body was not healthy enough to be able to make it through the surgery. And they admitted him to hospice. The friends who were expecting miracle were devastated, but they made a pivot. And they decided that they would keep watch and pray until Mike took his last breath. It just so happened COVID restrictions were still in place. And there was nowhere for them to be. But it also just so happened that the hospice room that they had had a window that overlooked a parking lot. And his friends from his Bible study gathered together outside of his room, put on their bright lights for two hours, and shined the lights through the window while his boys were gathered around his bed and Elizabeth too, to pray him in to the arms of Jesus. Elizabeth said this was not a happy ending, but it was a holy one. Whether we have it just so happens stories that wrap up really neat and tidy, it's wonderful when that happens. But even when they don't, what we know is that God is somehow, some way taking care of us and manifesting his presence to us in ways that sometimes we don't see until after the fact, sometimes in it. God is always working in the complexities, and we trust that he does that. We also, though, trust this, and that is that loss never has the final say, and I'm going to be honest with you, I would be living in a padded room most days if I did not ground myself in this reality. N.T. Wright again says this, that God is like a master chess player. Master chess players know how to get to the end game, and they will. Because of the finished work of Christ, God's purposes will prevail in the end, whether we see them in the here and now or not. But N.T. Wright also says that sometimes even for a master chess player, there's a novice or another player that makes a surprising move. And that's kind of how life works. Life throws surprises. COVID was a surprise. Evil behavior is a surprise. 
life and loss can oftentimes be surprises. And a good master chess player carefully considers how to work with that in order to get to the end game. Ruth and Naomi got to experience God's purposes, the end game, continuing down their course. Naomi took the child and put him in her arms and became his nurse. The neighbors named him saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is remarkable. The most horrific circumstances and the most unlikely people, a Moabite that was considered a dog, someone to be avoided, an outcast, a widow, a guy with all this authority that humbled himself to treat a woman with respect and dignity, and then God working through all this stuff behind the scenes to bring about through these people a baby who just happened to be in the lineage of Jesus. It is an amazing story. So listen, when we, me too, find ourselves in the deep, dark, uncertain waters of the hard things in life, lament, cling to one another, exercise agency where you have it, But in all this, know that there is a good God who is present and loving and your loss will not have the final say. Now hear the words of benediction from Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.